Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see everybody, and I hope you're all well today. As Pastor already stated, today we're going to talk about the beloved son. Now, when I was a young man, I always knew and I had a belief that God existed. But like most men, I didn't know him, didn't know who he was. But that all changed in July of 1986 when the Spirit of God revealed himself to me through the Gospel of John. It says in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. In verse 14 it said, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That was the day I began my Christian journey. Now today, we're going to look at at a message from the Father. This book is a little bit different, which, of course, this message centers around the words, this is my beloved Son. We'll consider the superiority and preeminence of Jesus Christ. Our text is in Hebrews 1, 1 through 14. There we'll see why he is better than anything that was before. He is a better messenger. He has a better message. He is the founder of our faith. What makes this section of scripture so important is the fact that any Christian, any Christian can become discouraged. There are the cares of this world, problems with family, health, finances, persecution, ridicule, and of course the list goes on. We need to be confident and put our complete trust in the only one the only one that we can go to. So the writer of Hebrews purposes to encourage, discourage Jewish believers in Christ. But the words of this section of Scripture are also beneficial to encourage any discouraged Christian, whether he be Jew or Gentile. That doesn't matter. To better understand the context of the writer, we need to beware of three distinct groups. Believers who are discouraged because of the animosity and persecution shown to them by their fellow Jews. Also, unbelievers who are intellectually convinced of the gospel but have made no commitment to Jesus. And thirdly, unbelievers who have heard the message but are just simply unconvinced. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. I'll read them. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God has spoken to our Father through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance and the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. 
After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness, of, of, of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up like a garment. You will be changed. But you are the same and your years will have no end. And which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Let me pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for who you are, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you sent us this word and we ask today that your, your Holy Spirit would, would uh, have complete charge over this place this morning, Lord. We pray that you'd set this old man out of the way so that we can hear from you, Lord. That's who we need to hear from. Father, we just thank you. And we pray, Lord, that these words that you, that you show us today will be applied to our hearts through that power that your Holy Spirit provides us. Thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Okay. These Hebrew Christians were facing the, uh, the possibility of external, I mean, extensive persecution. Jews were not expected to accept Jesus, who was especially rejected by the religious community. And so the writer determines to show why they should look to Jesus. Although the human author of Hebrews is unknown, the inspiration we know derives from the Holy Spirit. The book is meant to exhort discouraged Christians to continue on strong with Jesus in the light of his complete superiority. We must always remember what he said. I am the way. The message comes from God the Father And it's all about his son. It tells us that Jesus is superior, more so than the prophets, more so than the angels, and is better than anything that came before. Matthew 17, 5 tells us, And a voice from a cloud said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. We're told in Hebrews one second verse that in these last days God speaks to us through his son 
We've been in the last days for the last 2,000 years. You know. Remember, God doesn't view time as we view time. <laughs> doesn't have much had much meaning to him really and it had something to do with us because we we have limited amount of time here right anyway Moses told us in Deuteronomy 18:15 the Lord your God shall raise up for you a prophet like me from among you from your brothers it is to him you shall listen it's easy to see why Paul got so disturbed because his Jewish brethren didn't want to listen to Jesus. Didn't want to hear his word. That, that, that hurt Paul. Anyway, Jesus came as the mediator of a better covenant because it is one that doesn't have to be repeated over and over and over again. His sacrifice removes every sin once and for all. John told us he was in the beginning with God. It's John 1, 2. John the Baptist, who Jesus called the greatest prophet, said in John 1, 30, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. And the 27th verse said, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And in John Chapter 18, verse 37, Jesus declares his mission to Pilate. He said that for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Let me say that again. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Romans 10.17 tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. God gives to every man a measure of faith, but he only gives saving faith to those he calls. We who hear his voice can be confident that we are called by God. In this context, understand that hearing is believing. Now, we've all heard the expression in one ear and out the other. We know what that's like, right? And in some cases, it goes in here and it, it parks up here for a while. But in our case, it goes in here and drives right down to our heart. We're the ones that hear him. We're the ones that listen to him. Okay. I'll give a little bit better explanation of that a little later on. But anyway, when... Paul wrote in Romans 4 that Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. He uses the model of Abraham to prove justification by faith alone. Judaism never provided such a thing, right? Uh, Some might say, well, isn't faith a work? I like what John MacArthur says about that. He says that he says that he, that that faith is not a meritorious work. It is a listen, a channel through which it is received. See, God gives us that faith, right? God clearly speaks to us through his son in these last days. Those he calls hear him through that channel of faith that God has given them. The very point of all scripture 
is to learn of him and, and getting to know him. Now, early on, even his disciples were slow to understand. Anyway, John 14, verses 8 through 10, Philip says to Jesus, Lord, show me the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and still you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Verse 10 demonstrates the unity and dependence of Jesus that he has on his Father. There's no image or likeness of God, but the person of Jesus Christ. The, this reiterates the words of, of John's gospel when he says, The word was with God, and the word was God. The letter to the Hebrews is kind of a unique letter. It's not so much Jesus speaking as it is the Father speaking of his Son. Verses 1 and 2, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world, Again, John's gospel says he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him, not anything, uh, anything made that was made. He did it all. He made it all. Okay. God has never been silent. When he spoke to us through the prophets, he spoke to them in various ways, parables, historical narrative, dramatic presentations, psalms, proverbs, and so on. But now, in these last days, he has spoken to us through his Son. Brothers and sisters, there is no other revelation. That's it. It's not so much that, that Jesus brought a message from the Father. It's more like that Jesus is the message from the Father. This message is purely God's message and God's personality through which it came. As Jesus told Philip, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. No mistaking who he is. Now, if I can flip the page here, we can go on. There we go. If you can't hear the message from Jesus, no amount of prophetic Voices or actions are going to convince you. Jesus made it clear when he said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life. That's John ten twenty seven through 28. I repeat, hearing is believing, and by hearing we respond to his voice. Jesus also told us, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's John 14, 6. Verse 3 of our text tells us, He is the radiance and glory of God and is the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Throughout Hebrews, Christ presented as, as being better 
than the best of everything and everything that was better before him, including anything the Old Testament provided. He's the one upholding the universe by the word of his power. This is not just passively holding something up, but actively sustaining all things. Now, I remember when they launched the first satellite. Back, we've been launching satellites up into space since the 1950s. Okay. They have a problem, though, because they get, they get up there and they start to orbit around the Earth. But there's a law, a physical law, called gravity. And eventually, that orbit begins to decay, and these, these, these vehicles, these satellites, fall to Earth, and they usually, when they hit the atmosphere, they burn up. Now, we have a moon. The moon is a satellite of the Earth, and it rotates around the Earth twice a day. And we on this planet, as are all the planets, are satellites of the sun. It takes us 365 days to circumvent the sun. Been that way ever since men could figure it out, right? Well, why isn't our orbit decaying? Since the sun's gravity is far greater than the Earth's, right? Why, why don't well, these things decay? Well, we just read it. Because he is the one upholding the universe by the word of his power. He controls all things. It was he himself that had to purge our sins. The Bible tells us that there are none righteous, no, not one. We just don't have the right stuff. But that doesn't mean we don't get it. Okay? By virtue of his walk, to the cross, he received our sins and we received his righteousness. Good thing, because we have no righteousness of our own, do we? And that's what we call the right stuff, Jesus' righteousness. Verse 4 tells us, having become much superior to the angels, as the name which he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Well, what's in a name? Well, here's a good example. Verse four, Acts verse four, twelve states, and there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Of course, we know that that name is Jesus. But in this context, that's not the name we're talking about here. Okay. His superior status is demonstrated by a superior name, which is not just a title, but a description of his nature and character. Keep in mind that Jesus was fully God and fully man. It is written in Hebrews 2.7 that he was made a little lower than the angels. Okay. Now, that doesn't mean he's partially God and partially man. That means he is fully God and he is Fully man. Verse 4 could likely prompt a question. Well, isn't he superior to the angels eternally? Yeah, he is. He is is superior to the angels. Yet, he is, in in what sense did he become better than the angels? He became better in the sense that he was made perfect by suffering. And so it is, he had to become a man. 
There's other reasons too, which we'll get to later. Hebrews 2.10 tells us that he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Jesus is the way because he made the way by offering, offering himself, who is, by the way, the perfect sacrifice. First century Jews easily rejected the gospel, believing that the gospel came from the hands of men. But we know that the gospel came from Jesus. The Father told us that in these last days, we are to listen to him. Old Testament scripture in Psalm 2-7 declares, I will tell you of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. The more excellent name we speak of in Hebrews 1-4 is the name Son. Although the angels collectively are called sons of God, but no angel was ever given that title individually. Chapter, I mean, verse 5 says, For which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now, oddly, in the early church, there, there are some that had a tendency to worship angels. You can read that in Colossians 2.18 and again in Galatians 1.8. It's important as important as it is that we know of the deity of Jesus, we shouldn't let it be at the expense of his humanity also. The incarnation shows this more, uh, 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 shows us that he is who is fully God and made himself to be fully man. No book stresses this more than Hebrews. Jesus himself on many occasions called himself son of man. In fact, the, the title was used over 80 times. Okay, in verses 6 and 7, and again, when he brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Okay, I got both of them, didn't I? Ah. The superiority of Jesus to the angels is also demonstrated by the fact that they worship and serve him. He's their God, and they are his ministers. We see angels worshiping Jesus in Revelation 5:11 through 12. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. He who made himself a little lower than the angels became worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. When John the Baptist looked upon Jesus, the man, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus said in his prayer in John 17, 15, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. He made himself a little lower than the angels. Verses 8 through 12 says, but of the Son, he says, your throne is forever. The scepter of your uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. 
You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. Of the sun, he says, your throne is forever. Well, the address alone is enough to let us know that the Father calls the Son God. We see the words, therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. This shows a definite interaction between all three persons of the Trinity. God, your God, tells us the Father, the Father's position of authority over the second person of the Trinity, the Son. And the Son, as being anointed, has in mind the ministry and presence of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. The Son is called Lord as well, as we see in verse 10, and he is described with the attributes that God alone has. Remember again, he said to, he said to Philip, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father, right? He's got all, his, got all the attributes of the Father. Make sure I get that. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is the creator. You, Lord, in the beginning, laid the foundations of the earth. Jesus is self-existent. They will perish, but you will remain. Jesus is sovereign. He's immutable, unchanging. You are the same and eternal, and your years will not fail. Verses 13 and 14, and to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool for your feet? Now the angels, we know, are God's ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. They minister to us, his church. Jesus has sat down having completed his work while the angels work on continually. In Psalm 110.1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Anyone able to sit at right hand of the divine presence shows us that he belongs there. There are no seats for the angels around the throne. They're constantly busy praising and serving God. The angels are his subjects. Isaiah 9, 6 said, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now the angels are ministering spirits, as told to us in Hebrews 1, 14. They are not governing spirits. You see, the government will be upon his shoulders. We could ask, why then is Jesus called a servant and minister? Simply because it was part of his voluntary humiliation. But of course, it was not his essential nature. 
we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for all of men. He tasted death for all of us. It's Hebrews 2.9. We're told in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in the book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. My darn hands dry out. Hard for me to turn these papers over anyway. The offer extends to all men, faith being the key. Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It don't say you might be saved. It doesn't say you could be saved. It says you will be saved. Should be easy for us to trust in the Lord then, shouldn't it? Of the incarnate son, Hebrews 2.17 says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful, faithful, high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Of course, we know propitiation means to reconcile or to satisfy. I think pastors told us that on a number of occasions. Right? What is, what, is, what is it that the high priest does? Well, Hebrews 5, 1 through 4 gives us a pretty good description of what a high priest does. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required for the people so as for himself to offer sacrifice for sins. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who was called by God just as Aaron was. What they're saying there is, Before he could make sacrifices for the people, he had to make a sacrifice for himself. Right? He was a man. And we all have one thing in common. We're all sinners. Right? Jesus was chosen sent and honored by God the Father. Thou art my son, today I have begotten you. Psalm 2.7. And here, thou art a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. That's Psalm 110.4. Now Jewish readers knew that both passages referred to Messiah. God invested Jesus with the authority and honor of high priest according to the order of of Melchizedek. Now Melchizedek was a king and a priest. He lived at the time of Abraham. His ancestry, we 
we don't know about it. Anyway, but he was, he was king of Salem, which is the ancient name for Jerusalem, and was a priest of the true God. That's Genesis 4.18. Okay. Melchizedek's priesthood was better in two ways. He was a king. Aaron wasn't. His priesthood was perpetual. Aaron's was temporary. Now, Melchizedek's priesthood is, is a much better picture of Christ than that of Aaron's. Understand that we're still in need of a high priest. Okay? We, every day, every day, we're accused by the evil one. He goes before the throne and he accuses us. Look at him down there. Look at Cooper in traffic. Look at him, right? We're accused every day, right? But Jesus intercedes for us every day. Brothers and sisters, we're sinners saved by grace. We're, we're not perfect yet, but the Bible tells us that one day we will be. It says that when we see him, we will be just like him. In the meantime, we have Jesus, our high priest. We all know what we are, and we all know what we need, right? Hebrews 2.10, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Only his sacrifice could be perfectly sufficient and acceptable by God the Father. It had to be him. Oh, come on. There we are. Superior in every way, yet he allowed himself to become lower than the angels and to suffer and die. Again, as Hebrews 2.10 tells us, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Not only was Jesus superior externally, the man, Christ Jesus, made a little lower than the angels, became superior to the angels through suffering. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father, a seat that only he can occupy as our high priest. It amazes me, I don't, I, I, the whole Bible amazes me, in that the Old Testament points directly to Jesus. Even the position of high priest pointed to Jesus. From the very first verse, Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21, it's all about Jesus. Brother John used to always, who, we, who just left us a while back, Brother John used to always say, always say that history, his story, that's what the Bible is, isn't it? A true high priest had to be taken from among men, meaning that he had to be a man. Okay. Jesus was appointed by God on behalf of men, a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, who was both priest and king. And we all know, too, but in the fullness of time, Jesus 
It says in the book of Revelation 19, verse 13 to 16, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God, and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is both King and High Priest. To summarize our message, we have noted that Hebrews is primarily directed to Jewish believers, but in its totality, it is beneficial to all believers. The purpose being to exhort discouraged Christians to continue strong in Jesus. Represented are three distinct groups, believers, unbelieving uh, uh, unbelievers who are intellectually convinced by the gospel, but, uh, but only intellectually, I should say. And the third, unbelievers who were attracted by the gospel and the persecution, I mean, in the person of Jesus Christ, but had reached no final conviction about him. I remember Harold Bergman, when I first became a Christian, and I told him I had become a Christian, right? Harold, Harold said to me, he says, well, look out now. And I said, what? Look out now. Right? He goes, he says, you're going to be getting it from all different directions. And he was right. I mean, you even get it from your own family, you know. So the writer of Hebrews desires them to see the superiority and preeminence of Jesus. He tells them that Jesus is better than anything that was before. He by whom all things exist made himself a little lower than the angels by becoming a man, fully satisfying all things required by God for the salvation of mankind. Now, you know that, that God gave dominion, gave dominion to man over the earth. But good old Adam forfeited, didn't he? But God said, man will have dominion over the earth. Now you get a good idea why Jesus became a man, don't you? Also, he became a man to be what? Our high priest. He by whom all things exist made himself a little lower than the angels. Jesus, who now sits at the right hand of the Father, our high priest, always interceding on our behalf. Nonstop, brothers and sisters. I remember I had a big brother, my brother George. And uh, you know how big brothers do. They take up for their, their younger brothers, right? They might torment them, which he did, right? But, they, but they, they take up for them. See, we have an advocate who takes up for us every day, every day. Anyway, the father said of him, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And Jesus himself said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them. John 6.37 tells us that the Father gives to me, well, it tells us that all the Father gives to me will come to me, and the one who comes to me, I will never drive away. Many came to him, but not all who came to him were given to him by the Father. There's a difference, okay? 
when Jesus made statements in John chapter 6 that anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me. He also said that he is the bread of life and that everyone who eats this bread will live forever. Now, now, this has been taken out of context in a certain place. I won't mention the name. I think you all know where that is. But anyway, uh, uh, this metaphorically symbolizes the need for accepting the sacrificial work at the cross. That's why we take communion, to remember and commemorate what he did for us, what he paid, the price that he paid for us. But because there were, they were willfully blind, they couldn't see the spiritual significance of his analogy, and many don't. So we see in John chapter 6, verses 66 through 69, after this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Did you hear what I said? Many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? But good old Simon Peter. Simon said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. The language indicates that this abandonment was final. Not all who start out believing follow through in total acceptance. There's a difference. We are commanded to believe, and all who don't will be held to account, making these verses extremely important. Remember who this letter is addressed to, believers, unbelievers who are intellectually convinced, and unbelievers who are attracted by the gospel and Jesus, but have never accepted him or the gospel. It is known to us that genuine faith is never exclusively a matter of human decision. God's sovereignty is involved. We are called by the Father, and by virtue of his gift of faith, we hear the voice of Jesus. As Jesus explained to Pilate, anyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And as he said earlier, as I said earlier, hearing his voice is believing. Some hear but don't hear. You know? I remember when I was a kid, I would lose something. And I'd be working for it, and I'd be getting all kind of frustrated. And my father used to say, he'd shake his head and say, boy, you look, but you don't see. <laughs> and he was right. I could never find it, right? My mother usually found what I was looking for. Right? So, yeah. Remember, the same Holy Spirit that anointed the man, Christ Jesus, anointed us. You know why a pastor can do what he does? Because he's been anointed by the Holy Spirit. I can say that about all of us. We can't do anything without his Spirit. We're anointed by his Spirit. Almost done. 
As I said in my summary, the purpose of this message is to exhort discouraged Christians to continue on in Jesus. No matter what our circumstances bring about, we need to stay focused on the one who is the author and finisher of our salvation. We need to continue to listen to him, the one who has overcome the world. That's why it's so important for us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. We need to listen to him. What you saw what these three guys did, these three people, these three, these three groups that we were looking for, right? You know, all of a sudden they they weren't listening anymore, and 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 the farther you stay away, it begins to fade. But I got to say this: Peter had it right when he answered wonderfully, Lord. To whom shall we go? Let's pray. Father in heaven, because we hear the voice of your son, help us to respond to him in all his ways. His mission hasn't changed. He came to seek and to save the lost. He told us to go and preach the gospel to all the earth and to make disciples of them. Father, keep us strong in faith. Make us resolute to your will. And may our lives bring glory to your name, and it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.